a graduate of Asbury College and Asbury Theological Seminary, Dennis Kinlaw received his Ph.D. from Brandeis University. He was a lifelong student of God's Word and human culture, always looking for evidence of God's activity in human life. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. The most familiar portions of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I think this is the 15th uh, first chapel of the year that I have had in the last 20 years. So it is not a new experience. But one of the things that is fascinating to me personally is the excitement with which I find myself coming to every initial chapel in a new year. I'm sure that one of the reasons is just the joy of having former students come back. And secondly, the joy of having new students, the new students that the Lord has brought to us, to Asbury and to this community. It's a joy to see you, joy to welcome you, and it is a joy to anticipate what is going to take place in many of your lives. I think the thing that is most exciting about it is simply you. Not those of you who sit on the faculty as precious and as dear as they are and as important as they are. But it is you, the students, who are here that bring the excitement to those of us that are a part of the administration and the staff of Asbury College. Because as we live with you from year to year and some of us from decade to decade, we come to a profound understanding of how significant you are. We know that you have an importance that we need to respect. You see, uh, we know where you came from, not your geographical location from which you came but your ultimate origin. You see, the life that you possess was not given to you by your mother and father. It was given to you by God. And so, the one who sits in a seat in Hughes Auditorium before whoever speaks on this platform, that one is a person who comes from God and goes to God. Your source gives you a significance. 
I remember Ethel Waters, the singer who sang oftentimes with Billy Graham, in giving her witness once spoke about how at one stage of her life she did not feel that she was important. And then she began to confront her relationship to God, her origin in Him and His purposes for her. And she crystallized it. She said, I took a new look at myself because God don't make no junk. Now, I like that. He doesn't make junk. Junk does not come from God. Now, we may turn his priceless treasures into junk, but the origin is good and the purpose is very noble. Now, we know that you're important because of the price tag you wear. You see, in our culture, we value things by how much they cost. Sometimes it's a true indication of value. Sometimes it isn't. But in this case, the price tag that you wear is the supremely authentic evaluation of your personal worth. Because, you see, if you take the price tag on any one of you this morning and turn it over, you'll find it's marked not in dollars, but it's marked by a cross. Because God paid divine blood and divine life for you. It's not a person in this audience that is not of eternal worth because an eternal price was paid for you. There is where Christianity has a higher view of the value and the supreme importance of any individual. It places the highest value of any religion or any value system in the world. There is no other system of thought in the world that places as high a premium upon your worth as does the gospel of Christ. Now, a third reason why we... Uh, respect you is because we know that God values each one of you equally. He paid the same price for you, and your source is identical, and he is without respecter of persons. You and I may come with different worths before other courts of appeal, but when we come to this place of worship, all stand absolutely even. I had a priceless experience once at pastoring. The time came for the Sunday morning offering, and I sat behind the pulpit, and at that point I walked around and stood in front of the pulpit, just a little above the floor of the sanctuary, and the ushers stood in front of me. And so I walked around and looked down. There were four ushers that morning, and as I bowed my head, I noticed those eight feet. And it's a good thing that people in the congregation don't know everything that goes on in a preacher's mind while he's in the pulpit. The same way it's even better that the preacher doesn't know what goes on in the minds of the people sitting out in front of him. But as I bowed my head, the thing I became supremely conscious of was to whom those eight feet belonged. Because you see, the one on my far left was a little fellow just barely over five feet tall. He was an Armenian. He had oval eyes and an oval face. He had that deep complexion 
of the Middle Easterner. His name was Berberian. And when I first got acquainted with him, I had to watch myself that I pronounced it correctly. He was in the who's who in American men of science. He had been decorated by the Lebanese government for his contribution to public health in that country. He was a research scientist and was the director of a significant research department in one of the major pharmaceutical companies in the world. In addition to that, he was a professor in the major medical school in our part of the country. And in addition to that, he had a private practice. He's the only man I ever knew that could run four jobs at the same time and never get ten. And if I wanted to see him, I usually went at 10.30 at night. He would have gotten rid of his last patient, perhaps, and he'd be sitting listening probably to Mozart. And we'd sit down and talk together. An amazing person, devout Christian. Many martyrs for Christ in his family. I learned a great deal from him. Standing next to him was a fellow who was very tan, very brown. His name was Nunez. He was a Latin. In his Latin American country, his family happened to be on the wrong side of the political fence when a coup occurred. And so he fled his country and was never able to go back. When we got acquainted with him, he was a dancing teacher in the Arthur Murray Dance Studio. And he fell in love with a very blonde fellow instructress. And they came to the church to be married. He from a Roman Catholic background, she from not too much of anything. And in the course of that counseling, both of them became Christians. And that morning, as I looked at his feet, there he was. He was teaching a Sunday school class and was a Spanish teacher in the local high school. And his wife was one of our Sunday school teachers. The person standing next to Raul was an American black. He was a medical doctor. He was one of the leaders in the development of family practice as a legitimate discipline within the medical profession. He'd grown up in Charleston, South Carolina. And I'll never forget, his daughter and his wife came to Sunday school, and after about six weeks, I went to see him. And I looked at him and said, Joe, uh, you ought to come to church. He said, I'm scared to. I said, why are you afraid? Well, he said, there's something contagious up there. He said, my kid has caught it, and my wife, and I don't know whether I've got the time. I said, I dare you to expose yourself. And he did, and at that time he was the financial secretary of our church. He used to introduce me, that was in the mid-50s, that was before 1962 and some other things, that was in the mid-50s, and he used to introduce me to his black friends as a fellow refugee from North Carolina. Now, you'd have to probably be a little older than you are to appreciate the bite in that. But the fourth fellow, if he were here, I'd call him a Polak because he was Polish enough. His name was John Kohler. He was a Sunday school teacher. He was the best visitor, the most aggressive visitor we had in the church. 
He was an insurance salesman. One day I asked him, I said, John, how would you become a Christian? Well, he said, I was the bartender at the, in the Kitty Hawk room at LaGuardia, and my wife was tending the bar at Idlewild. And a Baptist layman came in that bar one day, climbed up on a bar stool and looked across at me and said, John Kohler, Jesus loves you. He said, I'd been married five times. That's the kind of Roman Catholic I was. But he said, when he began to talk to me about Christ, something happened to me. And my life was transformed. He didn't have the education of either Joe or Dr. Berberian, Dr. Robinson or Dr. Berberian, nor even of Raoul. But I was fascinated that there in the presence of God, all of us were exactly alike, and all of us of eternal worth. Now, you're significant because of the model that God used when he put you together. Because he did use a model. The scripture is explicitly clear that when he designed you, he designed you according to the character and the image of his Son so that we are made in the image of God's own Son. So the model from which we were designed is Jesus the Christ. Now, you and I are never going to be divine the way he was, but even from the human point of view, the potential is rather impressive. And that's the way he put you together. Now, you're significant because God has a purpose and God has a plan for you. And it is not a casual one of indifferent significance. You will remember that the Son after whom He designed us said, For this cause came I into the world. I came not to do my own will, but to do the will of the Father. And the thing that I have come to do, the work that I have, is eternally significant in that it's the difference between eternal life and eternal death, eternal light and eternal darkness, eternal love and eternal lostness. And when he designed you, he sent you forth with a purpose as explicit as that of his first son. You know, sometimes I think we have the feeling that if a person really sells out to God, really sells out to Christ and is wholly His, that somehow He'll move to the margin of what's important. You know, I remember when it first came home to me, the biblical data on that. Do you know the only interactions that we know basically that Abraham ever had with other individuals that were considered on a par with him other than his nephew. You know who they were? Every last one of them was a king. One batch of them was kings from Mesopotamia when he took his camel corps and went and delivered his nephew Lot and his friends, colleagues, from bondage 
the enslavement in which those kings had placed them. You'll remember one of them was the king of Bimelech, king of the Philistines, and the other was the most powerful man in the world. He was the Pharaoh in Egypt. And you will remember that Sarah, Pharaoh picked her to be one of his wives. That's not on the margin when the most powerful man in the world wants your wife. I've become convinced that when you leave God out of your life or put Him on the margin, you move to the margin of what's significant. But when you crown Him King, Lord in your life, you become like a Joseph. You may have started in a pit in the wilderness, but you'll end up in the court. You may be be like a Daniel, or you may be like a Paul. There's a very real sense in which the moment Paul was converted, there was no way you could stop him short of Caesar's court. And when you let God become God, let Christ become Lord in your life, God is not in small-time business. He's in the biggest business in the world, and He is Lord of it all. And as you yield yourself to Him, He begins to move you to the center of what is significant. And it's significant, as we said, not just for time. It is significant for eternity. I'm sure that one of the greatest disappointments in hell is going to be people who live vigorous lives, aggressive lives, worked hard, gave themselves for some cause, and at the end of their lives saw that it counted for nothing. But do you know the humblest believer who walks with God, when he comes to the end of this life, will simply have begun his significance? And what he has done in obedience to Christ here will have just started its fruitfulness? You know, he may put you like a seed underground for a little while. But when the rains come, the eternal rains and the eternal sun, there's going to be an eternal blossoming from every life that belongs to him. You say, well, if that's true, is it inevitable? Can I miss it? I look at a lot of other people and I don't feel that... uh, They seem to have hit anything quite significant like that. Yes, you can miss it. You say, well, how can I be sure that I don't miss it? Here is the good news that I have for the morning. You have somebody on your side. And you have somebody that can help you. And you have somebody that has a life interest in you and in your success in terms of God's will. And that's the Lord himself. You will notice in this psalm, the psalmist spoke, and twice in those opening lines he tells about how God leads. The Lord is my shepherd. He's watching out for me. He's responsible for the well-being of the sheep. I shall not lack. That could be translated, I shall not miss. 
You don't have to miss your destiny. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me. Do you notice? He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now, you could translate that. He leads me in the right path. Because, you see, right and righteousness here has more than simply the moral content in it. If you will let Him, He will lead you aright. Now, you may not recognize Him when He comes, but that doesn't mean He's not there. When He comes, He may come in some strange form. But if you are sensitive to Him, you will recognize Him in any guise that He takes. I was halfway through college between my sophomore and junior year, and a Greek evangelist was in a camp where I was, and I went to him and said, Mr. Pappas, he was an Asbury graduate, I need to talk to you. And he looked directly at me and said, Dennis, God's calling you to preach. Don't say no. I never talked to him after that. (laughs) I had other plans. I really didn't expect Jesus to show up in a Greek. But he did. He comes in a lot of ways. She was a little 72-year-old woman who probably weighed about 85 pounds ran for the United States Senate on the Republican ticket in North Carolina in 1928. That takes guts. Excuse me. Remarkable little woman, a widow. She came to me after one of the first services in the congregation where I preached, and she said, Dennis, I am going to be your self-appointed grammarian. You made some grammatical mistakes this morning. You haven't learned to put objective cases exclusively after prepositions. You mixed them up today and put a nominative and an objective after a preposition. And I'm going to correct you until you quit it. (laughs) Do you know The way she said it, I knew she loved me. And I knew he had sent her. So I got the idea. And I suspect there are doors of opportunity that have been opened to me because of Fanny Faison. She had some other bad habits too. She'd come to see us at 6.45 in the morning. But when she came, she usually brought a half a watermelon or two or three cantaloupes or a half a bushel of peaches, so it was sort of hard to argue with her. But uh, she was God's witness and messenger to me. He came to me once in my father-in-law. Some people would consider that sort of a dirty trick. But my father-in-law drove from connected in New York to eastern North Carolina. 
and looked me straight in the face and said, you don't have enough education. I was a graduate of college and a graduate of seminary. I looked back at him and said, I've got seven more years of education than you've got. And he looked back at me and said, yes, but you don't have enough education. And if you'll go to Princeton, I'll help take care of Elsie and the baby. I wouldn't be standing here today if it weren't for my father-in-law. I would have never had the opportunity of teaching at Asbury Theological Seminary. I would have never had the opportunity of coming to Asbury College in 1968 and coming back now if it hadn't been for my father-in-law. You never know how God is going to come to you and through whom He will speak. But you can count on it if you want to hear His voice. He will come. Because He's more interested in your career than you are. Because it's not your career first, it's His. He designed it and planned it and has His own purposes for it. And He's on your side. And if you want His will, you're going to have a mess of a time missing it. Now, it isn't automatic, and it isn't mechanical. And there's nothing that you can do in one moment that will guarantee that you will find it. Because His will for you comes out of a daily relationship with Him. And in that daily relationship, you have to stay open. And you have to take advantage of opportunities when they come so that you can be ready when the great opportunity comes. If you miss the little one, the big one will never show up. And you will never even know what you've missed. And the world won't know what you have missed and what it has missed. But if you can see the little ones and take advantage of those and get ready, the bigger ones are as inevitable as God's sovereign purposes. I've always loved a line from Abe Lincoln. At least they say it came from him. Maybe apocryphal, but it's a good one. Abe is supposed to have said, I will study and get ready and maybe my chance will come. Now, I have a different faith than Abraham Lincoln. I believe if you study and if you get ready, you can pull the maybe out of that sentence. You don't have to say, maybe my chance will come. You can say, if I study and get ready, let me say it for you, it will come. Because God has guaranteed that. That's the reason that you need to take every course that you take seriously. You won't have a course that you register for at Asbury that you can afford to take casually. The wisdom that is represented in the core curriculum is an incredible thing. 
You say, I don't have any particular interest in that segment of it. Well, then ask God to create some interest. You won't have a course that will not prove significant to you in the years that are ahead. There are many of us who could speak out of decades of testimony to that. So every opportunity that you have, grasp it and master it as best you can so that you're building, building, building for the future that God has for you. Which brings me to a law of life. And that is that a seized opportunity means a larger future, and a lost opportunity means a diminished future. It is a law of life as absolute as the law of gravity. A seized opportunity means a greater future, and a lost opportunity means a lesser future. I had a resident director when I was here who caught me about midway through my freshman year. And he looked at me and said, Ken Law, you're a fool. I'd never had many people speak to me like that. I said, what do you mean? I lived across the hall from him. I thought we were on friendly relations. He said, God has a block in his kingdom for you to fill. And every opportunity for development that you miss shrinks your capacity to fill it. And he said, the way you're going is going to be an awful lot of space around you. And you're going to be a peanut in a place where you ought to be a building block in God's kingdom. You know, I could understand that. There are times when I look back on that year and some other occasions. He said, you are squandering your future as a freshman at Asbury College. I've always been grateful for him. It's interesting how little thing can make an open door possible in the future or make it impossible for it to be there. I was in a pastorate, busy pastorate. I'd had the privilege of taking a couple of years of Hebrew at uh, Princeton. When I got in a busy pastorate, I began to lose it. And so I sweated a little on that. Then one day a friend of mine introduced me to a Jewish social worker who was also a Hebrew teacher in the local temple. So I said, do you ever take students outside of the temple? And he said, well, yes. So for five years, I met him every Friday afternoon at four o'clock, and we spent an hour together on Hebrew. Nobody will ever know the guilt that I carried most weeks because I was living so fast I had no time or didn't think I had time to really get ready. 
So I'd walk in Friday after Friday unprepared, guilty. I was guilty facing him, and I was more guilty going home and facing Elsie when I'd paid him the price for that hour for tutoring because the budget was tight. But I remember in 1960, I found myself sitting in a professor's office at Brandeis, and I said, would you ever take an old bald-headed man in your program? He said, do you know a little Hebrew? And I said, well, little. So he flipped open a Hebrew Bible and said, read for me. And if it hadn't been for those Friday afternoons, that hour with that Jewish social worker, I wouldn't be standing here today. It is amazing how little things make openings in the future possible or take them away and you don't even know they're gone. Now that's the reason that... uh, I believe you ought to stick as close to him as you can stick so that you know his voice. You ought to live in such close communion with him that when one of those strange little doors opens and he says, move in, you hear him. Because if you're a long ways away from him, he's not going to yell. But if you hear his voice and you move, when the next step comes, you will be ready. What do you need to be sure you don't miss it? Let me mention just a few characteristics quickly. One of them is, I believe you need to be hungry. The future is for the people who are hungry. If you're not hungry, you'll never get it. For the future is for the hungry. The future is also for the curious. Your curiosity can be a curse, but it is an incredible gift from God. And if you'll let that curiosity be under His control, you'll be ready when the opportunity comes. The future is for the curious. You need to be a bit daring. If you play it safe, you'll never know what you've missed. You need to stick your neck out somewhere for him and for his future for you. And you need to be humble. You need to be humble enough that you can hear his voice no matter whom it comes through. And if you're humble enough, it'll be there when you need it. 